Today's reading is Jonah chapter 4. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. The Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry about this? Then Jonah went out to the east side of the city and made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. And the Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there, and soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. This eased his discomfort, and Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But God also arranged for a worm. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, You feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? This is the word of the Lord. As we're sitting, kids, you are dismissed to King's Quest. Just when you think Jonah can't get any weirder. (laughs) Jonah 4. I'm going to pray and... Some of the things that came to mind while during worship um, was this language of, or really the image of God breathing a new breath upon us, um, and the the promise, or maybe even better, the, our proclamation to God that it is well. I mean, those are like we we need that. At least I need the strength to be able to say that, and I think we all need, in some ways, like the, a fresh breath of God um, over us. So I'm going to pray, um, and I just want to, for some reason, I find myself sometimes in situations and I think, why am I here? Like, what am I doing here? And I wonder if, if there are people who are here this morning, if you're new or maybe you, you've come a few times, and you're like, I don't know why I keep doing this. Um, I don't know why I keep coming, but for some reason I feel like I'm supposed to be here. Or maybe you weren't planning on being here this morning and you are. Um, wherever you are, I just I trust and believe that God has a word for us. God has a word for you, um, and so I'm going to be praying that God would speak that to you, to me, to all of us this morning. So let's pray together. Father, you are a God who does speak. You are a God who is good to us. You are a God who breathes over us so that we might come alive. And I do ask that you would breathe upon us this morning. I ask that you'd give us the strength 
to be able to say it as well, that we would have that trust um, of you to be able to say that. God, I pray for, for those of us who are here this morning and ask that you would speak and that we would trust that you want to, that we would trust that we are here to hear from you, Father the good Father who loves us, the good Father who's come to us, the good Father who has, is, and will continue to speak to us. Thank you that you are that type of God, um, and I thank you that you are with us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I can't remember if I introduced myself, but in case you're new, my name is Daniel Long, and I'm a pastor here. Um, And we've been going through the book of Jonah, and this this is it. This is the final chapter um, in the book of Jonah. It's been a crazy ride. He's taken us all over the place. He's been a really wild character. Um, but we're going to end um, our time this morning with Jonah. And I just, just by way of, of introduction, if you haven't been here, or maybe you're um, here for the first time and you haven't been a part of the series, I just want to name a few things about the series. Really, we're, we're taking the book of Jonah not in the way as a children's story, but really as a way to be able to see who is this God, what is he like, and what does it mean to be in relationship to him? Because we see this prophet Jonah who has a problem with God. And we see that it's okay to have a problem with God. And through this book, it's actually turning the tables on what it means to be in relationship to God and sort of the expectations that perhaps we place on different characters in the Bible. Because in this book, in particular, it's found in the book of Prophets, and it's unique in that it doesn't actually contain a lot of words of God, which most of the books in the Prophets do, but rather it's a story. And so we've been taking a look at it as a narrative and asking the question again, what does this narrative say about who God is and what he's like. And we see that the book is filled with irony. We have these archetypes. We have the prophet. We have the pagans. And we have the evil city. And everyone sort of acts in a way that they're not supposed to. The prophet disobeys God. And the pagans and the evil empire, the Assyrian empire, which is Nineveh is the capital city of this Assyrian empire, they actually respond to God in obedience and in faithfulness. And so it's turning the tables on sort of what that is. And again, what is that trying to say? And so to talk about a narrative flow of the book to where we find ourselves now in Jonah 4, just real quickly, we begin, right? The word of the Lord comes to Jonah, and God says, I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to proclaim a word that I will have for them. And Jonah says, no way. Um, I don't want to go there. The Assyrian Empire, again, is like the, the enemies of Israel. They are very violent, and they've treated them poorly. And so he's like, I'm not going there. So he flees to Tarshish, which is in the complete opposite direction. He gets on a boat, he's on the boat, and then God hurls this great wind, the boat's going crazy, the sailors are like, what's going on? Jonah's like, well, it's happening because of me. And they're like, what do we do? He says, throw me over. So they're like, okay. So they throw him over, and then a big fish swallows up Jonah. And then Jonah 2, we have Jonah praying to God in the belly of the fish, crying out for help which God does help, and Jonah says salvation belongs to the Lord. God speaks to the fish, and the fish, the fish vomits Jonah out onto dry land. Then we go into chapter 3. We looked at this last week, and we see the incredible grace that God offers Jonah by coming to him a second time. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. It says, go to Nineveh and preach the word I proclaim to you. Jonah does. He goes to the city of Nineveh, and he preaches this five-word sermon in Hebrew, And in our text, it says, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And somehow, 
that word goes throughout all of Nineveh, and from the oldest to the youngest, they, they grieve, they put on sackcloth, um, and, and then it, the word gets to the king of Nineveh, and the king hears this word, and then he himself throws himself down onto the ground, covers himself in ashes and sackcloth, and says, and sends out a decree into all of Nineveh that no one is to eat, everyone is to put on sackcloth and to grieve, because perhaps God will see that we have turned from our ways and will relent from the destruction that he is going to bring upon the land. And then we see at the end of the text that God, in fact, does relent, that he does not kill or destroy the city of Nineveh and the, the cattle and, and all of the animals who are there. And Jonah 3 ends with this, um, verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, I go through that narrative because I think it's fa- I think this is where the book should end, right? I mean, this is like where it should stop. In terms of Jonah being a prophet, to have this as your qualifications of like, yeah, spoke a word and turned an entire city around to God, I mean, nailed it, right, as a prophet. Like, he, he, it, this is where it should stop. But it doesn't. There's a whole other chapter, a chapter 4. And in some ways, this kind of reminds me as I was reading it this, this week, that this kind of feels like the story of the prodigal son in a way, right? Where you have this incredible story of the son who's like walked away from his father, comes back, and, and then the father throws this feast. And then all of a sudden you think, wow, this is amazing. But the story continues and then it becomes about the father and the older brother. And, and this becomes like that. Where all of a sudden it was a story about God's grace toward, toward the Ninevites and the word that came to all of them, and they repented and they turned from their ways, and a whole city is saved. And yet there's a chapter 4, and then it becomes about God and his relating to his prophet. And so it's a reminder to us that, in fact, the book of Jonah is more about God and relationship to his people and how they're going to be relating together and what it means that God is this way and how we or how the prophet Jonah responds And so if you want to turn your Bibles to page 775, we're going to look at Jonah 4. um, And we're going to go through some of of it, and I'll make some observations, and and then how I felt like this book or this chapter was speaking to me, and perhaps to us. So at the beginning of this chapter, again, it's on page 775, Jonah is obviously angry. He's angry not because of of actually God doing something that Jonah didn't expect. He's angry because God was acting completely in character. And that is precisely why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. It's because he knew who God was and what he was like. And so he says this in verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And Jonah is so angry that he says, take my life from me. Or as Dan read in that text, just kill me now, Lord. And for us, it might seem like it's super dramatic, like Jonah. Seriously, come on. Um, But what's really remarkable, I think, is it touches on something that I think we all feel. Or at least I feel. Because I can sympathize with Jonah here. Have you ever been so angry with somebody? So angry with the person who's wronged you deeply? And yet what you desire is not for God to be glorified, 
through his grace and mercy because of this person's repentance. But what you desire more is your vindication. Have you ever been so angry with a person that you have felt that way? That you would rather a person remain in their hard-heartedness and that you would rather no restoration and for God to be glorified through that, but you rather would have the reason to continue in your anger or to be vindicated. I hope I'm not the only person who feels that way. Because I feel that way. And so I read this in Jonah and I think, absolutely, I am more like Jonah than I wish I was. But then God says to Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Should you be angry? Which is an odd question for God to ask. And it's actually going to come up again later in the text. So where is this question coming from? And I actually think it's connected, if we look at closely again, at verse 2. At the end of verse 2. Because Jonah says, God, I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. You see, this refrain isn't Jonah's refrain. This is actually a refrain that's common to the people of Israel. Now, if you'd like, you can turn your Bibles over to Exodus 34. You don't have to, because I'm going to read it. So to give you context of Exodus 34, this is right after the time when Jonah first gets the tablets, right? The Ten Commandments, and he comes down. And while he was up there, all of a sudden the people of Israel started getting crazy. And they said, okay, well, Moses is up there, we don't know what to do, so we're going to actually fashion a golden calf. And we're going to worship this idol, which is forbidden in the commandments that God has just given Moses. So Moses comes down, and, and of course God is also angry, saying he is going to destroy this people. Why did he bring them out of Egypt? And Moses prays on their behalf. And then Moses comes down, and he's so angry that he breaks the tablets. And then he goes, he goes up again to get a new set of tablets, and he comes back down, and he says this in Exodus 34, 6. Or it's said, God says this. So the Lord passed before Moses, before him, and he proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So here's a refrain that's actually part of God's dealings with the people of Israel that we find in the book of Jonah. Now, if you want to turn over to Nehemiah, which is on page 405, 404, we have this whole litany of things, of disobedience, or stories of disobedience between Israel and God. And over and over again, there's this acknowledgement of God's dealing with the people of Israel, of having mercy, having grace, and abounding in steadfast love. We see this in Nehemiah 9, verse 17. It says this, But they refused to obey, and again, there's like this litany of, of stories between Israel and God. They refused to obey your commandments, and they were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, and they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. Now that's really fascinating, that here this winds up in Jonah, and that this is actually coming from the lips of Jonah to God. And why I think this is so fascinating 
is be, and God asking, do you do well to be angry? Because there's almost this sense in which Jonah has forgotten who God has been toward him and toward his people. And again, all throughout the book of Jonah, there's this, there's this playing on words of what it means to know something. Because Jonah says, I know that you are this type of God. And he said that in chapter 1. I know and I fear the Lord. That Jonah says all of these things, but yet does he really actually fear the Lord? Does he really know that the Lord is gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love? Or is it just something that he knows in the sense that it's something he's heard, but has he actually experienced it? And I wonder if Jonah is saying this, or this, the book of Jonah in this moment has a suggestion like this. Do you, do you want to know what a good indicator is of whether or not you have a handle on, on God's grace and mercy in your life? Here's how you might know. How do you feel when that same grace and mercy is extended to your enemy? How do you feel when God's grace and mercy is extended to your enemy? Does it make you angry? Then perhaps you yourself don't recognize or understand or know what it means that God has been gracious and merciful toward you. I mean, that's an interesting connection and an interesting question that I think is raised in the book of Jonah. I'm trying to find it in my Bible. What page did I give you? 775? There it is. Um, And so here's a question that comes up in this chapter. How How do you know whether or not you actually know God's grace and mercy in your life? Well, how do you feel when God extends that same grace and mercy to your enemy? Then the Bible, or then the book, the chapter turns, and it gets even weirder. In verses 5 through 11, some strange things happen. We see Jonah going out of the city, right? And it makes this, I think in this um, translation it says a booth, which is something like a shelter. And it says that he's he's going out there to kind of see what is going to happen to Nineveh. And it's funny because I get this, it's almost like a pouting moment, right, on behalf of Jonah. As I was reading this, I was thinking, man, my five-year-old is Jonah, my two-year-old is Nineveh. And because um, <laughs> there's this, it seems as if, right, like my two-year-old can do something crazy, and then all of a sudden the way that we interact with our two-year-old it just makes my five-year-old furious, and he just, like, he doesn't get it. He'll just go, he'll kind of like remove himself and, be, and pout. And he'll be frustrated. And so this is kind of where Jonah is, right? He's gone out of the city. He's just kind of watching. I just imagine, like, with his arms crossed. Um, and, and then he, he builds this shelter. And then all of a sudden, God, it says, that he appoints this plant to come up over Jonah to give him, to give him shade. And then in verse 7, we have God appointing a worm the next day to attack the plant. And the plant withers. And then God appoints a scorching east wind. And the sun beats down on Jonah's head, which I'm convinced if you have not lived in Lancaster, you don't know what this feels like. Um, because, someone said amen, I heard, oh, there you go, Michelle, that's right. So Jonah is just bombed. I mean, he, here he is on the outside of the city, 
already angry. And he has this plant that grows over him, which he's stoked on, right? And then he has this, this then this, the plant withers. And then he's, he's like getting sunburned with this scorching east wind, and the sun is just beating down on him. And then he, again, Jonah says in verse 8, he asked that he might die. And he said, it is better for me to die than to live. And then, God, and then there's a, again, there's the interplay of this conversation. God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah says, yes. And I imagine words before that, yes. Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. And then the Lord says, You pitied the plant for which you didn't labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Here we go again with the cows. Um, And so what is going on here? Like, What is God saying to Jonah? Well, I think it's something like this. Jonah, how is it that you're mad for something that you had nothing to do with? A plant that then withers. How can you care so deeply for that and yet be angry? Because shouldn't I care for the people of Nineveh for whom I am responsible, for whom I have created in my image? Shouldn't I care what happens to them, especially since they don't know what they're doing? They don't know their right hand from their left? Jonah, you have no responsibility in terms of, or at least agency with regard to creation, but I do. This is my creation. Should I not care what happens to it? And I wonder if that has something to do with why the cattle are brought in here, right? It's creation. God's saying, this is my creation. These are my people. Of course I should care what happens to them. Because look at you who cares for this plant for which you've had nothing to do with. I mean, I think that's one of the things that's going on. And here's one of the fascinating things about the way this story is told, that that's how it ends. And so why does it end this way? Why does this text end with the question? Anybody? Anybody know? (laughs) Um, Well, here's one of the reasons why I think it does. I think it ends with the question because it's posed to us. It's a question that all of a sudden doesn't become a question just for Jonah because we don't know how he answers it. It's still left in the air of how God's people may answer this question. So the, how will we then continue to answer this question? So the book of Jonah, if we didn't realize it already, is a book about God who wants to involve his people in what he's doing. And this idea of involvement, of including his people in what he's doing, is all throughout the book. Because what do you make of this? And if you want, I'm going to kind of go through, um, starting from Jonah 1, just pointing out a few things, if you want to look at your text. Because in Jonah 1, 4, 
God hurls this great wind, right? That's what the text says. It hurls this great wind upon, upon the sea where the boat was, where Jonah was. In verse 117, it says that God appoints a great fish. In Jonah 2.10, it says that God speaks to that fish, and that fish vomits Jonah out onto dry land. In chapter 4, in verses 6, 7, and 8, it says the Lord appoints a plant, a worm, and the scorching east wind. Now, this is really fascinating, because this word appoint, which shows up four times in the book of Jonah, is actually rarely used in connection to, um, to, to non-human activity. So God appoints people to do things. But here, God is hurling a great wind, he's appointing a fish, he speaks to the fish, then he appoints a plant, a worm, and a scorching east wind. So what's going on here? Well, I think it's a question that might go something like this. What does it say about God, who has complete reign of all of the physical elements to do what it is he'd like to do, wants to include us? What does it say about God, who can do whatever he wants through whatever he wants? Through a wind, and a fish, and a plant, and a worm, and an east wind. Wants to use you, and me, and Grace Long Beach for his purposes in the world. That is a pretty remarkable God. Who can do what he wants, and yet involves us, and gives us, some sense of partnership in what it is he's doing. That is a crazy thing to wrap your head around, for me to wrap my head around, that that's the type of God that we serve. And that is a word for us. That God can do what he would like to do with you, with me, with Grace Long Beach. And yet he involves us in what it is he wants to do. He's invited me and you and all of us to participate in the good work that God still has to do. That is an incredible gift that we are actually involved in. Because I'll tell you what, human beings are not the most efficient way to get things done. I am not the most efficient way to get things done. But yet, God includes us. But it's a much messier, uglier, and takes a lot longer to do. But God is gracious and forgiving and patient. So we can participate And we can be involved. Thanks be to God for that. And that leads us to another big question that I think the book of Jonah as a whole is posing to people, to you, to me, to us as a church. And this question really does come from the idea of involvement and this idea of what God is wanting to do. Because Jonah is at odds with God in that God had a certain idea of things, which included the mercy and grace extended toward Nineveh. And it was at odds with Jonah and what he desired and what he wanted. And so here's a question that I've been wrestling with all week that came to mind, and it's this. Can I trust, 
Can we trust that God's version of the story is better than the one that we have in mind? Can I trust, can we trust that God's version of the story is better than the one that we have in mind? Can I trust that God's version of the story of of the world of which I'm a part is better than the one that I have in mind? Can we trust that God's version of the story of Grace Long Beach is better than the one that we have in mind? Because I can get caught and I get trapped in this web of thinking, right? Which is, man, if the church just did blank, or if the church was just blank, or if we were more blank, all of these blanks, right, that we want to fill in. And I get caught into this way of thinking. But I have to stop and, and step back and think, wait. But this is God's story. I'm a part of it. And he's included me in it. And I can participate in it. And can I trust that God's version of the story is better than the one that I have in mind? And that's a question that we all need to wrestle with, considering where we are as a church. But perhaps that's a question you need to wrestle with personally. Where is your life right now? Is it in a place where it does not make sense one bit, and you don't know why you are where you are? You don't understand why things are the way they are. You don't know why what's happening is happening. And I'm not, I don't want to say that, um, or at least I don't feel comfortable making a claim that's so certain that said God did this or God is, is doing this. That's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is that I think that in through it all, God is telling a story, a beautiful, wonderful story that is often different than the ones that we have in mind? And can we trust that it's actually that beautiful and good and wonderful? And I'd like to suggest that we can trust that story, and we can trust the story God is telling because of the way that God has been telling the story, his story, which is the true story of the whole world. We can trust that God's version is best, Because God's story is one that continues, not because of our faithfulness toward God, but because of God's faithfulness toward us. God's story is one we can trust because it doesn't live or die based on the fact of how much I love God, but it's based upon the fact of how much God loves me, how much God loves you, how much God loves us. That's why the story continues. God's story is one that finds him coming to us in the person of Jesus Christ. To walk among us. To be with us. God's story is one that finds Christ on the cross, pleading on behalf of the people who are crucifying him, that say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's the story that God's telling God's story is one that, as it says in Colossians 1, finds all things being reconciled to God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's a reconciliation that that means both I and my enemy are invited here to this table. God's story is one that, by his grace and mercy, has gotten a hold of you and has gotten a hold of me and has called us together to this thing we call Grace Long Beach. Who's called the people in the world 
who have given their lives to Jesus to bear witness to his ongoing work of reconciliation in the world. That's the story God is telling. See, the story God is telling, as I said, is the true story of the whole world, and you and I are part of it. God has called you, God has called me, God has called us, and included us, and invited us into it, and we are part of God's story. And there's a question that I ask, there's a question that many of us are asking, which is this question, where are we going? Where is Grace Long Beach going? And I don't think we can answer that question right now. And I think that that's okay, because I think that's secondary to the primary, most important question, which is, why are we here? To which the only answer, adequate answer, can be the love and grace of Jesus Christ. That is why we are here. And we are called together to bear witness to God's love and grace in the world, in Long Beach, in our lives. And so, Grace Long Beach, here we are, called by God to be his children, called by God because of his love and grace to bear witness to the truth that God, through Jesus, is reconciling all things to himself. This is the story that we are caught up into. This is the story that tells us why we are here. This is the story that is to make sense of our lives. This is the story that we come to share, that we come to be transformed by, that we come to live into and thereby proclaim it to the entire world. This is the story that reminds me that we as a church still have good work to do. And some of that work Paul puts in this language in Colossians 3, 12 through 17. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to the God, the Father, through him. So thanks be to the God whose word comes to us again and again. Thanks be to the God who pursues after us, hears our cries, and rescues us. 
Thanks be to the God who involves us in his ongoing work of reconciliation in the world. Thanks be to the God who is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Thanks be to God.